Welcome to Great Points, financial insights for improving your relationship with money. I'm Matt Schroeder, Certified Financial Planner and Director of Financial Planning at Great Point Wealth Advisors, a fee-only registered investment advisory firm with offices in Boston and Danvers, Massachusetts. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm honored to have a great guest on this week's uh, episode of Great Points. Uh, my cousin Rob Famulari is joining me all the way from sunny San Diego. Uh, welcome, Rob. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. No, welcome, everybody, I should say. Yeah, excellent. Um, so you want to give your audience a little bit of background about yourself, and then I'll put you on the hot seat. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm out in San Diego, California. I moved here from Massachusetts about 17 years ago. Uh, I'm an executive chef for work. Um and yeah, just looking for a little bit of financial advice from my cousin here. So here I am. Sounds good. Excellent. All right. Well, like I promised, so Rob, you're on the hot seat. You've got three, three-ish questions, and I'll do my best to answer them and provide some guidance that may help you as well as anybody else who's tuning in. Excellent. All right. So we'll start it off. Um, I re- so I'm recently married, as you know, and uh, we opened a joint Roth. So now I have a 401k and a joint Roth. And how do you suggest I manage that in terms of savings and, de- and you know, uh, monthly deposits? Equally, uh, can you not go wrong? Um, so what's your a, suggestion? Yeah. So obviously your 401k is through your job. So um, you know, the only way that you can put money in there is through payroll deductions. Um, and if your employer offers any type of match, like uh, 3% or 5%, usually you want to make sure you put, you know, that money in there first. So <clears throat> if you could only afford to save 5% and your employer offered a 5% match, you'd probably put it all in the 401k because that's like free money. Mm-hmm. Um and especially if you're, sometimes your employer might offer a Roth 401k option. And that's okay. kind of like, that could be the best of both worlds. Cause you put, you put money in your 401k and it goes in the Roth portion. And then your employer, when they match your funds, they actually go in the pre-tax portion, but you're getting, you're getting Roth contributions and you're also getting um, the employer match. Um, so if you have that to work, great. Even if you have a 401k and a Roth 401k through work, you still may be able to do a Roth IRA outside as long as your income doesn't exceed the threshold um, that kind of disqualifies people from, from contributing. So usually if you're kind of younger, which um, even though we're now in our 40s, unfortunately, Rob, um, uh, we're still, I would still call us younger. So on the younger side, once you've hit that match, I usually encourage people to look at the Roth for kind of up to the limit. You know, you can do up to $6,000 in the Roth IRA each year. So Mm -hmm. if you're want to put away an extra thousand bucks on top of what you're doing at work, I would probably put all that extra thousand in the Roth because um, the Roth is a little bit more flexible than your 401k and you can control it. And, you know, if you change jobs, you don't have to keep changing it every time you change jobs. So, um, okay. So, I, you so know, I, uh, yeah, the company does not offer what you were talking about, like the the uh, the, the Roth for it's just a straight four hundred one k. Okay. Um, and then so once we open the Roth, we put the six thousand in there for this year. Yeah. Um. So then you suggest always putting up to what they match, and then whatever excess you have put towards the Roth up to that six thousand. 
So the way the, the Roth, um, it's, it's not a joint. It has to be in one or the other name, but you can, technically, right, right. Yeah. you can technically both have a Roth IRA. So you could, oh. as a couple, you could do up to $12,000. So um, if, you know, with tax, tax rates aren't super high these days. So, you know, unless as a couple, you're making over three or $400,000, you're still in like the 22, 24% tax bracket, which I think is, is not that high in the grand scheme of things. If you look at the history mm-hmm. of the tax rate. So if you've got a few extra bucks to save and you haven't hit that $12,000 Roth limit, um, I think that's a great place to be stuffing extra money. Um, as long as you have like some a cash reserve and you have some emergency money and, you know, that I, I really like filling up the Roths because down the road, if you needed, if you ever needed to get to the principal, you can pull it out without penalty. Um, the growth, you never have to pay tax on if you leave it in there till retirement. So um, it's really, it's really a flexible tool. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, let's see, this could be another one. So we recently purchased uh, a condo, as you know, about a year ago. And we don't plan to stay here forever, but it was also the idea was for it to be an investment because San Diego real estate is typically unaffected by whatever the national real estate market is. How do you determine whether or not when it's time for us to move out of here, maybe have a family and need a bigger place, whether to sell or keep it and rent it? Yeah. What are what are the, the, the factors that would help you decide that? So yeah, that's a good question. Because a, a guest a couple of weeks ago asked a similar question about kind of in your real estate as an investment. So you're thinking about keeping it as a it, you know the decision is keep that as a rental now and then go buy a new place. Is that the idea? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, it it's sometimes it's financial and sometimes it's like emotional mental. <laughs> So um, like being a rental landlord is not the easiest thing in the world. So um, I'll put it, you know, so you, you, I know you've worked in a lot of restaurants and think about it. Is it easier to own one restaurant or is it easier to own three restaurants? One. One. Okay. I thought it was three. When you have three, you have some economies of scale. You can have like, you get to. Yeah, it's just much more expensive. Much more expensive. But um, so when, when you only have one unit, and there's only one tenant in one unit and anything goes wrong with that one tenant, you lose all of your income on that property. Um, so it, you know, even though if the math makes sense, sometimes it can be a risky investment, especially if you don't have the, the desire to want to get into a lawsuit over a real estate issue, or you don't want to be coming over to fix the sink or whatever it may be. So, sure. um, so when you think about as in, you know, there's an, the financial part of it, which is actually the easier part, because you can do the math around, you know, here's what we have left on the mortgage. Here's how much our rent is. Here's what we think we're going to collect for rent, or, you know, here's our mortgage payment. You know, we're going to be able to collect this much in rent. So, um, you know, so the, the, the emotional side is one of it. The second part of it is, usually when you're going, you know, especially in an expensive neighborhood like San Diego or even Boston or New York or California, uh, most people need the equity in that property to buy their next place. Mm So if you're going to buy a house of equal value, you need to have, let's say you want 20% down to put in the next place Mm -hmm. and you might have 20 or 30% equity in your current home, but if you're going to rent it, you have to leave that equity there. And then you come up with 20% for, for the next down payment. So on a, 
on a half a million dollar house, that's that's a hundred thousand dollars. So even though you might have a hundred or one hundred fifty thousand of equity in your current home, if you're not going to sell it, you now have to save a hundred thousand dollars somewhere else to buy the next home to keep the rental. So for most people, that's that's kind of too big of a swing. Um, you know, you get into some of the smaller markets where houses are a little less expensive. It sort of is more practical. Um, but that's usually the biggest the biggest drag is that down payment on the second property. Yeah, and that's a good point because when we first got it, we said, well, we can, you know, it's not our forever home, but we could hang on to it. And then, you know, I, if you see where it's at in say 10, 15, maybe 20 years, however, with the market, the way it is, we have 20% equity in a year. Yeah, that's, so that's the you other, know, you, get, so, you catch it at the right time and your 20% equity becomes 40% equity. Then all of a sudden you're like, well, we can still maybe borrow 10 or 20% of the equity and put that on the next property and keep this place. And so sometimes the right. finances will work. Um, the other thing you mentioned, you know, if you're moving to a bigger home because you're starting a family, now you've got other expenses that are creeping in and maybe there's, you know, if anyone has to be out of the workforce for a little bit, maybe you have less income coming in. So sure. the stress of having two mortgages can be challenging. So, um, but you know, what I have seen on some people do is they'll, they'll do what you said. They'll keep it as an investment property, build some equity. And then with the idea of probably buying maybe a second or a third investment property, because as you get multiple units, you can kind of leverage the economies of scale of, you know, if you have that handyman who can fix three properties versus one, maybe mm-hmm. a better deal. And, um, you know, you're not having to, you're not having, you're kind of, you're getting into the systems, you know, how things work. So you can kind of save some money as you're, you're adding multiple properties, but sure. That, like I said, that, that's a different mindset, a different personality. It's something I could never do. It's just, uh, I don't have the patience for it, but I've seen you know people that do it well and treat it like a business, not like a second piggy bank. Um, yeah. They can do it really well. Um, the other idea I've heard lately is, especially in a market like San Diego, if you Airbnb it versus just rent it to a single tenant, um, it turns over a lot more, but the rents are a lot higher. So you can actually get much more profitable um, if you've got some good systems to treat it like an Airbnb in a, in a popular space like San Diego. Yeah, that's a good point too. All right. Well, so it's, it, it, there's so much that would be situational to that, you know, Correct. depending yeah. because we're not looking to become house flippers either, you know? So it's, if, if we, I, I think what you're saying is if you have enough equity and can just sell it and immediately come out on top and almost transfer that towards your next home, then you, you've still come out you know, ideally well on top without dealing with the stressors of renting. Yes, that's the simplest. You know, If you were looking for a simple, carefree life, yes, that's usually the easiest way to do it. Because if you, if you track a, a rental property like that and say over 15 or 20 years and you do it right and you don't have any you know, kind of bad situations, you probably will earn about 8 to 15% on your money. Which is, mm-hmm. which is a good return. Obviously, there's going to be some bumps in the road, but that's about what it averages out to. That same money in the stock market would probably earn, you know, seven to ten percent. So not a bad return. Different types of volatility, but a lot less people issues. <laughs> so sure, um, if you're the type of person that doesn't mind people, then you know it could be a, a you know good business investment. But so for a lot of people that just would prefer just to keep it in their house and invest their money in the stock market and 
not have to be a landlord, then, you know, that's, it's like I said, it's more of a personality. Got it. Um, let's see. Oh, so my wife is about to go back to school for her master's degree. And she wanted me to ask, she's going to take on a student loan again. Yeah. So is it better to, for her to, you know, while staying full-time, you know, keeping her job to try and pay that loan back as quick as possible, even if that might mean diminishing temporarily her deposit into retirement accounts, or is it better to spread that loan out and continue close to your current contributions? Yeah. So I guess that would depend on a couple things. Uh, the first question I would probably ask is, is there any chance that any part of that loan might be paid by an employer or forgiven by a future employer, um, you know, in the, in, in, in her industry. So if there's any chance that her employer might pick up part of the tab or reimburse her for it, or a future employer might cover that loan, um, then I would say spread it out and, you know, see what happens, kind of pay, pay some interest along the way, but maybe you get some of it forgiven or paid off by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second, they're going to pay about, sorry, they're going to pay about 10% her current employer. Her current employer of so yeah. she's getting some of it paid for. So yes. for her portion, you know, sometimes you know that leads into a field that you know might have loan re loan forgiveness if you work in this section of the city. Or but um, the the second big factor is the interest rate on the loan. So some student loans are at a um, you know pretty low rate, you know three four five percent. But then there's other ones that that fall into different buckets that are seven eight nine percent. So. You know, if the interest rates are seven, eight, nine percent, it's it's hard to consistently make that level of interest in you know in your retirement accounts. Um, so, if the interest rates are higher, you're probably more motivated to pay it off faster. If they're you know below five or six, and you think your money can grow at eight or ten in the market over time, then you're better off stretching it out. Um, okay. You know, and and I think the big thing is it's not all or nothing. So, if if she, let's say the, let's say the student loan just is $5,000, we'll call that the number. And she's got an extra $500 a paycheck. I wouldn't put $500 a paycheck for 10 months and pay the loan off in 10 months and then go back to savings. I'd probably do like three and two until the loan's paid off and then go back. So you always have that, that reminder that you're doing some savings. Okay. Okay. Um, that makes sense. In, in, you know, the, the interest payments, they stink, but you know, sometimes there, there's a tax benefit to them. And, um, you know, and so, and the riskier you are, the more likely you are to just pay the student loan off over time. The more conservative you are, you're going to try to pay the loan off as fast as possible. Got it. And so, then in between, in between, that's where you, <laughs> split. That's where you <laughs> split it. You say, hey, here's, let's compromise. Let's do, um, so, same, it goes back to question one, which is if, the, if she's getting a match on that retirement savings. You would mm -hmm. never want to drop your savings below that match because you're missing out on free money. Sure. Above and beyond that, then you weigh the, you know, how much is it saving us in taxes versus interest we're paying on the loan? Because if you, if, if she's saving it to say like a pre-tax retirement account, every dollar you put in there might save you uh, federal tax, state tax. And I'm not sure if San Diego has a city tax or not, um, but it, you know, between federal tax and state tax, that might be a 35% savings. So you're, you're, you're paying 7% on your loan, 
but you're getting 35% tax savings by putting that extra dollar in the 401k. So okay. It's you know well, that, a, that makes sense. Yeah, you don't like I said there's never there's not always a, the right answer for everybody. Uh, but you know as you get, get to it there's a good one there's, there's the right one for the two of you. Right. So the interest rate is the is kind of what decides that. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So if the interest okay. rate is north of, you know, think of it like a game of sheesh. If you if you're holding a 7, <laughs> it's a tough card to play, but um, if the, if the, if the interest rate is north of seven, you, you kind of will try to pay the loan down faster. You're keeping your card. Keeping it, yeah. So I have one more that this one came from a friend. Um, so his spouse is 10 years older than him. So she'll be retiring 10 years sooner. That's so he was saying, he was saying, if so to speak, they were to retire together. Yeah, he has. He he sent this me in an email. So put together in quotes. Uh, would he be able to steer clear of early withdrawal penalties being married? That's a tricky one. So he wants to retire ten. He basically. So if she's going to be sixty, he wants to retire at fifty. If I'm understanding correctly, close he, enough. Yeah. He just wants to retire the same year, but be ten years younger. Yes. Yes. Got it. Okay. Um, so. There's some there's some unique IRS rules about that. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming he's referring to the 59 and a half early distribution penalty. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. if you retire and you try to take money out of a pre-tax retirement account prior to 59 and a half, most people have heard that there's a 10% IRS penalty, which is true if you just take one-time distributions. Um, but depending on at what age you're retiring and where your money is. Some 401k plans, like if you retire at 55, you can take distributions starting at 55 from your 401k without penalty. If you're before 55, there's something called an SEPP. It's called a separate but equal periodic payment. And you have to agree to take the same amount of money for every year until you turn 59 and a half or five years, whichever one's longer. So if you're 53, you'd have to take it for six and a half years. If you're 57, you'd have to take it for five years. Um, and there's a, there's a formula, you have to do it right, you have to do your homework. Um, so, but you could take distributions systematically every year, or you can stretch them out monthly, however you wanna do it, um, prior to 59 and a half by, and avoid the 10% IRS penalty. You wow. still have to pay taxes, obviously. Um, so if you know, you're going to need every penny of it every month, it's a great strategy to get to some of the funds earlier, especially if the bulk of your money is in pre-tax retirement accounts and you don't have liquid funds, other places, um, where it gets tricky is if you start it and then you decide to go back to work, you can't stop it because if you stop it, then you would incur the 10% penalty back to the first distribution. So if you're thinking you might go back to work or your spouse might get a, you know, a, a bonus or she may keep working and your total income goes higher, then it, you know, it, it can, the rules are pretty rigid. So, um, okay. but I've, I've done it with a few clients where they were retiring early, moving overseas and just wanted to make sure they had some money to kind of be able to, they didn't need a lot to live down there, but they knew they needed it every month. Um, and it really helped fund an early retirement. So it worked out great. Wow. He'll, he'll probably be happy to hear that. Yeah. So the, the initials are S E P P that's the, what's the, Oh, S S E 
S E P P E P P. If he Googles that, he'll find a calculator. Got it. Yeah. Cause the bottom said, are there any particular accounts or investment options that could make this happen? That would be it. No. So like anything that's not, or in, not, necess- not in not an IRA, like you could get to the principal of your Roth, you could get at other investments. So it's, my guess is he's talking about either his 401k or a pre-tax IRA. And that's going to be, those are, those are the things you have to look out for. Okay. SEP. Got it. All right. Well, I think that actually is, uh, that's the end of my questions. It's almost like you're running a sub podcast out there with all these fielding questions from the crew. <laughs> I know. Well, I said, said, Hey, here's the opportunity. <laughs> I said, I'm asking mine first, but if I have time, then you guys can get in. Yeah. And I know I said I was doing this for free, but if I do ever make it out there, it might cost you a round at Tory Pines. I think that's the. Hey, uh, <laughs> that's quite the trade. Yeah. Again, you can give me someone's local ID and we can get on. Well, and you can, come out, you can come out and play in January, too. Is that a good time or a bad time? <laughs> it's a good, it's, that's, that's always a good time. That's right. That's right. It's always, it's I, I, just, I just figured it was a good time for you. Boston in 30, 32 in January is not necessarily <laughs> the worst time to play golf. This is, as long as it's not snowing you can get a tea time so but um awesome well rob this was uh so glad you could uh make the time and make this work any other final questions or comments or uh things on the no topic? i just appre- I appreciate your input it was very informative uh and, and this will be recorded right because i couldn't write all that down this is recorded <laughs> you can share with everybody you know like i said i'm trying to capture the west coast audience now perfect so. well yeah the, the people that had me ask questions i will definitely share with and then maybe uh one of them will join you on your podcast. Excellent. So we're guaranteed at least four listens. That's what I love. At least four. Awesome. All right. Well, great talking to you, Rob. We'll see you at Thanksgiving. Have a All good right, one. Matt. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, I hope you can apply some of what you heard today to improve your relationship with money. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Great Points with Matt Schroeder. Great Points is hosted by Matt Schroeder. Great Point Wealth Advisors is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Great Point Wealth Advisors does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through Great Points. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.